0: If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, I believe that's page 864. Uh, This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about the subject of doubt. I wonder how many people here, if we were honest, would say that sometimes you doubt God. Maybe you doubt the existence of God, or maybe your doubt's a little different. It's more focused on the, the goodness of God, or the, or, or the fact that God answers prayer, that God cares, and, and that God intervenes in our daily lives. I wonder how many people have some doubt when it comes to God. I know that that's a dangerous question. Uh, to answer, to be honest about in a place like this. We, we worry about some things. If, if I were to be honest about my doubts, I think we wonder, what would people think? Uh, if I confessed my doubts, what would people say uh, uh, about the fact that I, I profess to have a relationship with Christ? If I were to confess my doubts, what would people say about that? If I were to give voice to my doubts, what would God say to me? Well, over the next couple of weeks, today and then and then on Easter Sunday, next week, we're going to focus on the answer to some of those questions, and we're going to learn the surprising things that God has to say about doubt. Uh, today, we're going to see what some of those things are. Next week, uh, we're going to talk about how to overcome doubt. I hope you will invite friends to join you on Easter Sunday as we talk about how doubt can be overcome, how we can dispel doubt in our lives. It'll be a great Sunday for you to invite family and friends that don't ordinarily come to church. But today, I want you to see some surprising things that God has to say about doubt. Now, to get us started, let me just give you four facts about doubt uh, just, just so we're on the same page, just so we understand some biblical things about doubt. And, and then we're going to just dive into a scripture passage that, that demonstrates, that shows us something uh, that I'm convinced you'll be surprised at this morning, something that God has to say about doubt. But fact number one, just to get us started, you are not the first person to have doubts. Uh, We we sometimes feel like we are because when we doubt, we feel so lonely, it's scary to share our doubts with others. But you are not the first person to have doubts about either the existence of God or or the love of God. In fact, one of the things I love about Scripture is that it is so honest. And when we read the Bible, we can see that not only do we have doubts, but that through the years people have struggled with doubts. Uh, We can turn, for instance, to David. To the story of David, the king of Israel. David, the man after God's own heart. David, who is most famous for slaying Goliath. And and David slayed Goliath because of his great faith. But, But though David was a man of faith, we read in the Psalms that sometimes David doubted God. David would express in his prayers that he was uncertain whether or not God really cared about the nation of Israel, whether or not God was going to be faithful, whether or not God was going to rescue them, whether or not God was going to answer prayer. And so David, though a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us he struggled at times with doubt. We can turn to Abraham. Do you know the story of Abraham? He is called the father of our faith, but Abraham and his wife Uh, Sarah, God spoke to them through an angel and said that you will have a child in your old age. And Abraham and Sarah, the Bible says, laughed in unbelief. Even Abraham doubted. And then we could go to the New Testament and we could see some of the doubt of the disciples. The disciples had spent three years with Jesus. They had heard every sermon. They had eaten every meal with him. They had walked with him and talked with him. Jesus dies on the cross, he's resurrected, the disciples go to meet with Jesus, and it says in Matthew 28, 17, that when they saw him as a group for the first time, that they worshipped him, but also that they doubted what they were seeing. We saw Jesus die. How could it be that he is risen from the grave? And so the Bible tells us that we're not the first people to sometimes struggle with doubt. Does that make you feel a little better? We're not the first people. You're not the only person to have ever had doubts. Now, the second fact, very quickly, is you can have faith and doubt at the same time. Sometimes we think of these as mutually exclusive, that you either have faith in God, that you trust Him, or that you doubt God. But the truth is you can do both at the same time. I remember when I was a youth pastor a bunch of years ago, we always had, uh, we called them a youth council. It was a group of six or eight youth that were sort of the leaders of the youth group, and we selected them and they made a lot of decisions and did a lot of ministry in the youth group, but we would pour a lot of, um, leadership resources into these, uh, young men and young women to help them grow up and be, you know, godly leaders. And it's amazing. Some of the things that they've done through the years, uh, but one of the things that we did almost every year with this group of people is, uh, we would go on a ropes course. You ever gone on a ropes course before? I don't think they do those anymore, but back in the, back in the 80s, the 1880s, when I was a youth master in the 90s, uh, the ropes courses were real popular, and so we would go on one of these courses out in the middle of the woods, and they'd have these ropes, or usually it, they were steel cables uh, connecting these treetops together, and so you would climb up the tree and you'd get on these ropes, and you were harnessed in, so you couldn't fall and die, you could fall and wish you had died, but you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't physically die. But, but, you know, I had faith that those ropes courses were safe. I wouldn't have taken the youth had I not believed that we would survive. But when I would climb up those trees, and I would get up on top, and those trees would begin to sway with the wind, or you'd get out on those ropes, and they seemed so unsteady, my faith would get a friend, and that was doubt, And it seemed like the higher I get up the tree, the more doubt would accompany my faith. I would have faith and doubt at the same time. See, faith is that assurance that something is true and that it is reliable. But when we test our faith, when we step out on faith, when we make a commitment to give something that's difficult for us to give, when we go on a mission trip that we're uncertain about, when we go and share the gospel with a family member or a friend and we're nervous about that, when we test our faith, oftentimes the emotional response to that is is doubt. And you can have faith and doubt at the same time. Uh, Fact number three, God doesn't condemn doubt. Now, it's just as simple as that. God doesn't condemn us when we doubt. I, I think about uh, the Old Testament uh, man of Job. Uh, do you know the story of Job? That's one of those Bible passages we don't preach often. Perhaps we should, but Job was the man who suffered greatly uh, he lost his uh, family, most of his family, he lost his wealth, he lost his health and and so the book of job in your bible is is mostly job talking about how hard life is, and some friends of his giving him some advice. Now, when you look at job and the things he said, job doubted God now he didn't doubt the existence of God, but he He doubted that God really cared and really was going to intervene on his behalf. It just seemed like everything was falling apart. It didn't just seem like everything was falling apart. For Job, everything was falling apart. Now, his four friends, they had no doubts. They were confident and bold. They were arrogant. They were so certain uh, uh, with the things that they believed about God. And so you get to the end of the book. Does God commend Job who doubted? Or does God commend the four arrogant friends who never doubted? God, God commends Job. See, God is not looking to condemn our doubt. God's looking to help us work through our doubt. In fact, the Bible gives an admonition for the church, an instruction to the church. In Jude chapter 22, he tells us, have mercy on those who doubt God does not condemn doubt. Now, we don't need to be cavalier about it. Uh, Doubt is a pathway that can lead to either greater faith or it can lead to unbelief. And so we need to be serious about doubt. That's what we're going to do the next two weeks. We're going to be very serious about doubt, especially next week. But we should know that God doesn't condemn it. God wants to use it to bring us to greater faith. Now, fact number four, it is never bad to be honest with God. If you're struggling with doubt, what should you do? You should just be honest with God. One of my favorite stories, and I hate to use the word story, it's a historical event that's recorded in uh, the New Testament, recorded in the Gospels, and is in Mark chapter nine. It's actually in three different Gospels, but in Mark chapter nine, I think is the best telling of the story. There is a father uh, who has a young son and, and the son has, um, he's possessed by a demon. And the demon is causing this boy to throw himself in a fire or throw himself in the water. It's a terrible thing. And so the father wants to help the son. The father goes to Jesus with the son and says, uh, you know, here's the situation. Uh, can you help? And in fact, I want to read to you exactly what the father says because he, <laughs> He, he doesn't say it very well. I mean, he, he says it very honestly, but not very well. L- listen to this. Uh, verse uh, Mark 9:22. The Father said, uh, "Many times it has thrown him to, into the fire and the water to destroy him." But he's talking to Jesus. Listen to what the Father says. "But if you can do anything, have compassion on us." And so Jesus could hear a little bit of doubt in that. The father said, Jesus, if there's anything you can do, like maybe there is and maybe there's not. And so Jesus detected that there was a little doubt. And so Jesus responded this way, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus said, are you doubting me? What do you mean if I can do anything? Of course I can do something. And so here's how the father responds. He says, immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What the Father says is, I believe. Well, I sort of believe. I want to believe. Help me to believe. The Father is just honest. I brought Jesus to you. I mean, I brought my son to you, Jesus, because I was hoping you could help, but I'm just not real sure about this. I've got a whole lot of doubt about this, and I want you to help my doubt. So what did Jesus do in response to the Father just being honest about his doubt? Jesus healed the father's son. We, we never go wrong when we're just honest with the Lord. And so if you're struggling with doubt, I wanna encourage you in the next few minutes as we, as we really zero in on some of these important biblical principles from Matthew 11, I want you to be honest with the Lord. So we're in Matthew 11 and I love this, uh, I love this story uh, it's, it's one of those stories that we, we generally skip over in Scripture. Uh, it's one of those stories that uh, it's interesting, but there's, it just doesn't seem like there's much here that uh, is a takeaway for us. But, but, but in Matthew chapter 11, there is a story of a great man of God doubting. And then what Jesus how Jesus responds to that and teaches us something that we must know Something that is surprising that we must know if we face doubt. And so we're going to look in Matthew chapter 11. I want to ask you, if you will, just to stand as we read just a few verses together. Matthew chapter 11, page 864. We'll begin reading in verse 2. God's Word says, Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. Now look at me for a moment, because I want you to know the setting. There are many Johns in scripture. This can be confusing. This is John the baptizer. This is the man who was sent to really announce that Jesus's ministry has begun. He was a relative of Jesus. Jesus would have known this man when they were little boys, almost certainly. And so John has come and he has faithfully discharged his duties. Uh, he, he has stood and told people that the Messiah is coming. He has confronted their sin. And as a result of that, John has now been arrested and, and thrown into prison. Now, just so you know, the source of John's frustration, and I know you're standing, but, but you need to know this before we read the rest of it. John is frustrated because it seems like Jesus hasn't done anything to help John. John's been in prison for one year at this point. You know how many times Jesus has gone and performed a miracle to get John out of jail in a year? Zero. You know how many times Jesus has gone and begged the authorities on John's behalf so that they might let him go? Zero. You know how many times Jesus has visited John in prison to encourage him? Zero. And so John is sitting in prison. He's wondering... He's wondering, is Jesus real? I mean, is this really the Messiah? It, it, or, or should we look for another one? Now, let's, we'll see that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 3. He says, and he asked him, so here's what John is asking through his messengers he sent from prison. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? John's doubting. He's doubting because his circumstances don't match his expectations. He never dreamed that he was going to spend his ministry in jail waiting to be executed. And so he wonders, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? I mean, it sure doesn't look like it because I'm stuck here in jail. Are you really the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? Verse four, Jesus replied to them, to the messengers, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And then skip down to verse 11, one more verse. So that those men leave, they go back to John. And now Jesus has got a footnote to the story. He's going to say something about John the Baptist. Look what he says. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Please be seated. Do you see what just happened? John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the man who has faithfully discharged his duty, now ends up in prison. He's been there for a year. He's waiting his execution. He, in fact, is executed just shortly after this. They, they saw off John the Baptist's head, and he knew that was coming. That was inevitable. So he's stuck here in prison. Jesus doesn't, seemingly doesn't do a thing about it. And so John wants to know, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because it sure doesn't look like it to me. I'm stuck here in jail. And Jesus not only shows kindness to John in his reply, but then Jesus says, John is the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now, that's pretty much everybody, right? Anybody here not born of a woman? Okay. So Jesus said of doubting John that he was the greatest man ever. I want us to learn some important principles from this story, some surprising principles that'll help us to know what God says about doubt. Number one, the lesson of connection. The lesson of connection, and this is in your outline. I want you to see it see it closely, there is no connection between how hard your life is and how much God loves you. Now let that sink in a moment. There is no connection between how hard your life is and how much God loves you. When my kids were young, we would go to restaurants and they would get those coloring sheets. If you've got young kids, you know what these are. And there would be dot to dot, and there would be uh, some games you could play. And, And almost always, there would be a connection game. And here's how the connection game would work. There would be three or four little drawings of things on one side, and then there would be three or four drawings on the other side, and you had to connect the drawing on the left with the associated drawing on the right. For instance, maybe there would be a horse, a dog, a fish, and a bird, okay, you got that in your mind? A horse, a dog, I'm gonna see how good you are at this four-year-old game. A horse, a dog, a fish, and a bird, and on the other side there would be a a collar, a saddle, a birdhouse, and a pond, okay? So you've gotta figure out which one matches which one. Now I'm gonna give you a test. So the horse is connected with what? the saddle. Okay. Some of you have done this before. The dog is connected to what? The bird to the, and the fish to the, that's why I moved to Texas. I wanted to pastor smart people. (laughs) Now it's a fun game to play for a four year old. Um, the problem is that too often we play that game with God and the circumstances of our lives. And we think that if God loves us, everything's going to go well. We're going to be healthy. The kids are going to behave. The job is going to be solid. The money's going to be in the bank. And if we we sin, then things are going to go badly. And we think that we can judge how much God loves us by how things are going in our lives. And some people, because of that, doubt God because things aren't going so well in their lives, because your circumstances don't match your expectations. That's exactly what was happening with John the Baptist. John the Baptist's life was in bad shape. He was stuck in prison, and it was a life sentence. It was a death sentence, really. The circumstances of John's life had gone badly, and John was beginning to wonder, what does this say about God's love? Well, here's what Jesus wants John to understand. There's no connection between how hard your life is and how much God loves you. Uh, that's just not how this works. Uh, now, look at verse, verse 11 again. How much did God think of John the Baptist? Well, he says that he's the greatest man born of a woman, verse 11. So even though John the Baptist's life, the circumstances of his life were in bad shape, God still loved him and thought greatly of him. Jesus didn't say, John the Baptist, who has disappointed me, that's why he's in prison. Who has, who has sinned in his life, that's why he's in prison. Who wasn't faithful to me, that's why he is in prison. No, he says, John the Baptist, he's, he's lived about as good as any man has ever lived. John the Baptist. Listen, John, he's done everything right. There's no connection between the circumstances of your life and how much God loves you. Too often we think if we live right, God will like me and all will be good. But that's not biblical. It's not true. Some godly people will suffer and all godly people will suffer some. And sometimes wicked people will prosper. If God rescues us, it's not because he loves us more, and if he doesn't rescue us, it's not because he loves us less. I remember the story of the disciples getting in the boat and finding the storm. Do you know that story? So the disciples find themselves in a boat, a hurricane, almost a hurricane, kind of storm hits the boat. The disciples are fighting for their lives. Were they in the middle of the storm because they disobeyed God? No, Jesus told them, get in that boat, in that lake, and go that direction. Jesus sent them in the storm. They were right exactly where Jesus wanted them to be, and they still faced a storm. Sometimes we're going to face a storm. Now, you might say, well, then is there no benefit to following Christ? Well, of course there's benefit to following Christ, both in this life and in the life to come. But we must be careful that we don't try to connect the apparent benefits in life with whether or not God loves us. It's just not that simple. We must stop playing the connection game. Now, the second thing uh, that we learn here, the second principle, is a lesson of perspective. And it goes like this When I doubt God's love toward me, it is because I have a narrow perspective. When you begin to doubt whether or not God really loves, whether or not God really cares, it is because. Uh, you have a narrow perspective. Uh, if I were to take this piece of, this piece of paper and I, I hold it way out here, I can see this piece of paper and I can see all of, all of you. But the closer this piece of paper gets to my eyes, what happens? I see fewer and fewer and fewer of you until it gets right up close and I can't see anybody. The more you focus on your problems, woe is me, my kids have rebelled, the doctor's given me a bad diagnosis, the job is shaky, the dreams have been crushed, the marriage is unsure. And the more you focus on your problems, it narrows your perspective, and often from that comes doubt. So John the Baptist, he's in jail. What do you think John the Baptist thought of in jail every day? How much longer am I going to be in jail? That's what I would have been thinking. He was hyper-focused on his his situation. So look look in Scripture what Jesus told him to do. Verse 4, Jesus said, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news about Jesus. He says, John, you need to broaden your perspective. Don't just focus on what's going on in your life Look at all that God is doing in the lives of the people around you, in your church, and in the nation, in the world. If we will broaden our perspective. When I doubt God's love for me, it's usually because I have so narrowed my perspective that all I can see is one thing. Now, lesson number three is the lesson of purpose. Listen to this. God has a purpose for everything he allows in our lives. And now you may not know what that purpose is, but God always has uh, a purpose. Now, why wasn't Jesus in a panic that John the Baptist was in prison? Why, why was it Jesus running around? Oh no, John's been captured. John's been captured. No, Jesus wasn't in a panic because first of all, he wasn't surprised. He knew that was going to happen. And secondly, God had a purpose in it. Bible says, Romans 8, 28, that God has a purpose for everything and will use everything to accomplish his good in our lives. And so John the Baptist was in prison. Jesus knew it was going to happen. Jesus had a purpose in that. And so he wasn't surprised. He wasn't panicked. He wasn't out of control. Now, here's the tricky thing. What What was God's purpose? For letting John the Baptist sit in prison for an entire year and ultimately to have his head cut off. Well, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to let you chew on that. But I want to tell you this. If you'll read it, if you'll study it, you'll find the answer to that in Scripture. There's a clear answer to why God allowed John the Baptist to sit in prison and to ultimately be executed. But here's the important part. John... Couldn't have known. The only way we know is because we can read Scripture and we have this broader perspective of the whole story, the whole meta narrative of Scripture. John couldn't see that. John didn't know. It's hard sometimes to know in your own life when you're in the middle of it what God's up to. And and, and that's why people come to pastors and they say, Pastors, can, can you tell me why this is happening to me? Why is this going on? Doesn't seem to be happening to my neighbors. It just seems why, why, why? And and you know, pastors hate those questions because I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Because in the middle of it, you, you just can't know. If if I'd have been John the Baptist's pastor, and he would have asked me, "Why am I in jail? I, I was busy serving the Lord. Why am I in jail?" John, I, I don't know. I don't know. But when we step back from that and we look at it from a biblical perspective today, we can see some clear reasons why. But in the middle of it, you just have to trust. The lesson of purpose, God always has a purpose uh, for whatever he allows in our lives. And then the fourth lesson is the lesson of truth. Truth is the truth independent of our ability to explain it. Now, let me, let me show you what I mean. If you look back at the passage we read, verse 6, it seems like an odd verse. Uh, Jesus has just told the messengers to go back to John the Baptist, tell him that uh, Jesus is doing great things. You may not see it in your life, but he's doing great things. In a broader perspective, if you just have some perspective, John the Baptist, Jesus is doing great things. People are healed. Uh, people are hearing the good news. People are being raised from the dead. Jesus is busy doing something. But then he closes that by saying, and tell him this, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What he's saying is, is tell John, he doesn't need to be offended by, by this that's going on just because he can't understand it. Just because he can't understand from his perspective, why it is that all of these things are happening and why he's languishing in jail, just because he can't understand the truth doesn't mean it's not the truth. The truth is the truth whether you can explain it or not. The truth is the truth whether or not you, you understand it. God loves you and cares for you and has a purpose for your life. God is in control and everything is moving in the right direction. Now whether you can see that or not, whether I can understand or explain that or not, is immaterial to the fact that it is the truth. And what he says is, John the Baptist, don't be offended by the things you can't explain just, just, just know it's the truth. It doesn't have to be explainable or understood to be the truth. It's just the truth. What he's saying is blessed are those who don't give up on God when life is tough. When you can't explain why it's happened, when you can't explain why you're going through it, when you don't understand, you can't see the hand of God in this, don't give up when it's difficult. Trust the Lord. I remember when my when my girls were young, sometimes and usually Donna was the Donna was the person who did this. But sometimes I would I would take them to the doctor, and when they were young, they had to have vaccinations and all those things. So, you know, you'd take your little girl to the to the doctor. She'd be she, she's perfectly healthy and happy, and life's good. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor to give her this big fat injection, you know, and you know, from her, you know, in her, her eyes, it's this, you know, it's just horrible. And so, and, and so she doesn't want to get a shot. And so she cries and it's, you know, it's terribly painful and, and, you know, all the things that kids go through when they get shots. Now, from, from their perspective, from, from the perspective of my girls, what, what can they know about that situation? Well, they can know this. I was perfectly happy until dad took me to that mean doctor who gave me that shot that accomplishes nothing except makes me cry. That's from their perspective I mean, that's not because they were dumb. I mean, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good putting together of the situation. That's all they can know. And so they would go, and whose fault was it that they were suffering this pain? It was dad's fault. It was a needless thing that dad imposed on them. But you know, my girls, they were pretty, pretty, they're good girls. Even though they knew, or from their perspective, it was my fault. You know what they would do when that shot would hurt? They'd hold tight to their dad. You see, that didn't even make sense, right? It was my fault, but the more they hurt, the tighter they held on to me. But see, there's a lot of good theology in that. From our perspective, there are gonna be some things that the only way we can explain them is to say it's God's fault. God didn't stop the cancer from spreading. God didn't save my job. God didn't intervene in my marriage. God didn't rescue my child. God didn't stop the car from hitting the other car. God God didn't, God didn't, God didn't. From our perspective, that's, that's all we know. So what should we do? The more it hurts, the tighter we need to hold on to God because I don't need to be able to explain the goodness of God for the goodness of God to be real and the goodness of God to be true. And when you doubt God, that's when you need to hold most tightly to him. Now, let me wrap this up by just giving you some assignments. If you're struggling with doubt, number one, you just need to be honest. Tell God God, I'm struggling with doubt. With what I'm going through in life right now, it's hard for me to see your hand in the midst of this. And I'll just tell you, you're going to have to help my unbelief because I am really struggling. Number two, hang on. Don't doubt in darkness what God has shown you in the light. There are going to be some dark days. But when days were good, you knew the love of God. And so in dark days, when when the cloud has covered up the sun, just live knowing the sun's still there. Just live knowing God's love is still constant. Number three, you need to have faith. Let your faith, let your trust uh, be informed about how God has taken care of you in the past and how God has promised to take care of you in the future. And whether you can see it or not, just trust him. If you've never come to the place in your life where you have ultimately trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, it starts there. Trust God. Trust God. And then finally, next week, um, we're going to talk about how to dispel the doubt. And so, so, so We've seen something of what God says about doubt. Next week, we're going to talk about how you, can, how you can overcome the doubt through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want to leave you with just one verse. And I don't think I gave this to the slide, guys. So we, we have John 13. We do. Good. Uh, here's what Job said. Now, let me give you the context in case you don't know. Job lost everything. Job lost his wealth. He was a wealthy man. He lost everything. Job lost his, uh, his children. They died. And his, and his grandchildren and his, his, his whole family, everybody but his wife, he lost them in a terrible storm. And then Job gets sick, and not just a little bit sick. I mean, he's terribly sick and painfully sick. And Job didn't know if things were ever going to get better. But what did Job say? He said this, even if he kills me, he's talking about God. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. And I will defend my ways before him. He says, my faith won't waver because I ultimately trust the Lord. With your head bowed and eyes closed, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment. But I want you just, I want us to have a quiet moment here. Head bowed, eyes closed. Because I want you to have a a time where you can be honest with the Lord. Do you struggle with doubts? Maybe you doubt that God is real at times. Maybe you doubt that God is good or God cares about you at times. A doubt's a doubt. Would you be honest with the Lord about that right now? And ask the Lord to help you hold tight to him and to teach you how to trust him even in the storm. If you don't know Christ as your savior, if you've never ultimately trusted in him, when we stand and sing... There will be ministers down here in the front, and you can just step out from where you are and take somebody by the hand and say, "I I I want to start a life of trust in God, and let us help you take those first steps. I want to trust the Lord. I want to trust the Lord. Some of you, you've trusted the Lord for a long time, but the doubts, because your circumstances haven't matched up with your expectations, the doubts have been tough. Difficult, And if, if, if the Lord puts it on your heart, I want to invite you just to come and kneel and pray at this altar for a minute and just say, God, no matter what, I still, even if he kills me, I will trust him. I still trust you. I don't see, I don't see, I don't understand, but I trust. Father, I pray that our doubts today will lead to greater faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.